0: Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online, so you can access it from anywhere in the world. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whenever it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist with no additional cost. With BetterHelp, you, got, you get the same professionalism and quality you expect from an office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% of your first month at betterhelp.com slash how to survive society. That's better H E L P dot slash how to survive society. Hello survivors. This is your girl Abby Ayola Williams and you're now listening to how to survive society. How to survive society Is a weekly podcast that features survivors. These are people that have been through the ringers in life. They've been through hell and back, but they choose to stay positive. They choose to win. They choose to thrive and they choose to survive. So let's get right into it. Hello, survivors! Thank you for tuning in to another episode of How to Survive Society. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Martina Clark. She was diagnosed with HIV at the age of 28 years old, and um, now she's 58, living and thriving, and living with we're living with HIV. But she found a way to, to you know, survive the disease. So we're gonna more about that and and go from there so Martina please introduce yourself and thank you for coming on.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me Abby. Um yeah, I currently live in Brooklyn and I am living with HIV for more than 31 years and aging with HIV and those are sentences all of them that I never thought I would say in my entire life.
0: <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. So you got diagnosed you, you were 28 years old in ninety-two. That's this, this is when you first found out that you had HIV. Exactly. So how did you how did you catch the HIV? Did you, did you know how you caught it
1: or you know, I have to assume that it was through unprotected sex, which is how most people in the world get HIV. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know a hundred percent. I will never know a hundred percent. But um I know that I wasn't at risk through any of the other factors. So that is uh, that is the most likely scenario. Um, and I was 28 years old, and I felt like my life was supposed to be just beginning. You know, I was ready to go out and have a career and a life and hopefully a family. And, and then I tested positive, and my world just sort of shut down, and I felt like everything had been erased. Mm. I
0: can I can empathize because um my mother, my birth mother, mm-hmm. she actually died of um AIDS. She's had the disease for over 18 years. Wow. So I'm so sorry never, to hear that. Yeah, so thank you. Um she she didn't tell anyone that she had HIV, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know until after she died. That's when I found out that <clears throat> it was AIDS that killed her. Wow. But then <clears throat> I started blaming myself because I live here in Canada and she lived in Nigeria so I yeah. I was thinking
1: I lost you there for a second
0: tell me or I don't know, like, it's always a question that I play over my head every time. Like, how come you didn't tell me? Cause I'm sure I could have helped in some way, you know, if I had known that she had that, but yeah. So she died in 2018 at age of 52, 2053, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, that's that.
1: <laughs> wow. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, and I think that sadly that is the case for so many people and particularly women, that they they die with the shame of having AIDS, but never reaching out to, to tell people who could support them. That is sadly a far too common story. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that is on society. You know, science has done so much work to design medicines that will actually keep us alive a lot longer. But unless society supports people, and says it's okay if you have h i v it is it's okay. it's a disease, and a disease doesn't choose people specifically. it is a virus, it doesn't care. Um, mm. then I think we would do a lot better in society but but even today, I know people who you know have had the disease for a long time and are still afraid to tell people and it it breaks my heart. It just crushes my soul to know that so many people still live with that fear,
0: yes, exactly. And for you, what gave you the courage to be like, I have this disease and I don't care who knows about it. I'm still going to live my life and do what I need to do. Like what gave you that courage?
1: I think what gave me that courage is um, in large part that in 1992, when I was tested, we didn't have treatment yet. Mm -hmm. And so I, my doctor said, you know, you probably have a good five years to live and just try not to be stressed and relax and take care of yourself. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> oh, right, sure. My life is over. What are you talking about? But because I didn't have a sense um, that there was any option to get better, mm-hmm. and I really was living on this premise that I was going to be dead in a few years, I I think that's what gave me the courage to speak out because I thought I truly 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 had nothing else to lose. Um I also had never seen another woman with HIV. I probably mm-hmm. had but in my mind I perceived I had not, right? I'd only known lots of gay men with HIV because I lived in San Francisco at the time and it was it was sadly um very very present in San Francisco but only among gay men that I knew of. So, when Mm -hmm. I tested positive, I felt like, wow, I'm the only woman on the planet. Of course, I wasn't, but that was how I (laughs) felt. (laughs) And so, the combination of feeling like I'm the only one, um, and I only have a couple of years to live, I'm going to die of this thing. There's no getting better. Uh, I think the combination of those things and the anger that this happened to me at such a young age, I thought, I have to do something. So that even if I can't reverse it for myself, maybe somebody mm-hmm. else can benefit from my experience. Wow! And that's, that's, that's a good way. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's it gave me courage, and I think it's what kept me alive all these years. To be honest, um, that and just luck—you know, good good luck. Um, I can't blank <laughs> claim anything else except that, and and having the opportunity to start treatment when I needed it, which not everybody has, of course. But um, all of those things are, are what kept me together. But I think um, the fighting back and the standing up and realizing through my own activism that I very much was not alone. And that sadly, there were so many women like your birth mom who mm-hmm. didn't feel safe to come out and talk about it. Um I realized that there was really, really a need for somebody to stand up and yell and say, What are you doing? And why are you ignoring all of these people? And I was in a position where I could be an activist and support myself through other jobs. I didn't have a family at the time to worry about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had, you know, my siblings and parents, but I didn't have any children or a husband or any of that. So yeah. I wasn't worried about my activism ruining somebody else's life. Mm. Um, which also makes a big difference. You know, I think that's that's a big thing. And I think now it's actually harder in some ways for people to be activists because they have more to lose.
0: Yes. Because you
1: can live a longer life with HIV. The medications work. Um there's so many things that we didn't have then. But at that time I really thought I have nothing else to lose. I'm mm. going to be dead in a couple of years. Why not? And um And it ultimately, kind of by accident, but it ultimately (laughs) led me on a path that was absolutely extraordinary. And I would much rather have had a life without HIV, but I also had some great experiences that I wouldn't trade for anything. So Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was the right thing to do. And uh, I met so many extraordinary people around the world living with HIV and supporting people with HIV. And I feel so blessed to be a part of that community around the world. Wow. That's, that's courageous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like when you feel like you have nothing to lose, you, you know, you, you do your best work because you don't have anything talking you out of it or anyone telling you, Oh no, you can't do this. You know, you just, focus and do what you have to do exactly yeah, that's a great yeah that, that's a great way to see it for sure for yeah.
1: sure yeah it certainly worked for me and I you know and I also have complete respect for people who are like yep I'm not going to do that because once you put that information out there you can never get it back mm. that's one thing that's really important to people to know before they become activists and be the <laughs> face of something is you can't change that once you're out there you're out there But, um, and I, and I, as I said, I I really respect people who are like, I can't do it personally because I have too many other factors that won't make it comfortable for me.
0: Yeah.
1: But I think that um, for those of us who can, um, there's so much work still to be done. And even for those who can't be in the public eye, there's always still small things that we can do to support people living with HIV. And, And again, particularly women with HIV, because even in 2023, women are still so invisible in this pandemic. It's crazy.
0: I know. Yeah. And, and they usually get it from sexual activities, like you said. Exactly.
1: And I think I think something like... Involved. Exactly. So it's like 90% of the people in the world get HIV through unprotected sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and more than half of the cases of HIV in the world are women. Yeah. And I think those are two facts that most people don't know they yeah. are just not aware. They, at least in North America, it is my perception that people still think this is a gay man's disease. And yeah. it's still very much is, but it is not exclusively a gay man's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, And I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but we also need to be more inclusive and realize that it impacts any person with a body that comes in contact with the virus. You know, it has nothing yeah. to do with what you look like or or what where you do in from. your life. Yeah, or yeah. where you're from. Exactly. Yeah. Wow.
0: So you were, um, are you still an HIV educator for United Nations, or that was just something you did for a period of time?
1: That was something I did for a period of time, but a very long period of time. Uh, mm-hmm. I started with UNAIDS in the mid-90s, and I my last position with the United Nations was in 2017, I guess I left. I was working as an HIV advisor for the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. And in between, I worked for almost a decade for UNICEF. So um, nearly 20 years, I worked with the United Nations system. I have since left that, and uh, I now am a teacher. I teach English 101 to high school kids taking college classes early. So mm. officially, they're nowhere in my job title, am I an HIV? Uh, educator, but I am mm. still an educator. And what I teach my kids is hopefully like um, my, my goal at least is for them to find their voice on the page through writing so right. that even though, you know, officially we're there to learn the uh, the constraints of academic writing and the basic, you know, different forms of essays in a research paper, for me, what really matters is that they learn how to express what they really want to say, not just what they think the teacher wants to hear, but that they mm-hmm. learn within those uh, parameters to get their own opinions across in an effective and eloquent manner. Mm-hmm. Um And so in that way, I feel like I'm still sort of a social justice educator, if you will, not specifically on HIV, but... um for all of the many, many, many issues that this generation of people are, are facing. Yes. are sadly so many. A lot. I know.
0: <laughs> Too many. I, I always feel so bad for them. I'm just like, how are you going to survive the next 10, 15, 20 years? I know. All, it, all these things happen in the world. Like the morals. I I, I don't even know where to start. Like so many things happening i'm just like man i feel bad for this new generation like
1: yeah all they have is tiktok you know (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly and so for me i feel like my what i can contribute for them is to share maybe not my personal experiences as much because i you know, if it came up in class, I would not hesitate to share, but I also feel like that is not the job of an English teacher to come in and talk about the fact she has HIV, right? <laughs> my, job, my job is to teach you how to write a paper. But um, but at the same time, to share all of the sort of experiences that I have had uh, and the tools that I am now equipped with that have mm-hmm. led me to being a successful advocate and activist and UN personnel and all of that to share those tools with them so that they can go forward in the world armed a little bit more um, broadly, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, they really, they give me hope for the world. They are amazing. They're deeply concerned about a lot of issues. And I I feel for them, but I also (laughs) feel like they have a lot of fire. Yes. And they are determined that things are not going to continue the way they have been, which I think is good. I mean, it's sort of, we need a change. We need a change. Metaphorically, (laughs) we need to burn it all down and start over. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not literally, but yes, metaphorically for sure. And I think that they are seeing that there are ways that they can do it. And and at least in the United States, there's little tiny glimmers of hope because we have some amazing young Politicians coming forward and saying, Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm only 24 or 25, but I can do this. Yes. So they. Which is great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We don't need more middle aged and old, old white yeah. people <laughs> telling us what to do. Exactly. Yeah. We need diversity. Different exactly. Ways of
0: thinking, you know, different ways to approach problems, not the same things that we've been doing, because clearly it's not working.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and myself included, I feel like, and I'm as white as they come, but I feel like it is my, my job to to give the skills and empower the future generations, but it's also my job to, to step back and be quiet. Because mm-hmm. I am not the person that, you know, people need to hear from on everything by any means. And that doesn't mean I, I have to be quiet completely. I need to still stand up for myself and for other people dealing with things I'm dealing with. But mm-hmm. I don't need to pretend that I'm the one who knows better because I don't.
0: <laughs> so. It's true. We're all still learning. No matter how old we are, we're still learning. So Exactly. Exactly. It's true. So yeah. it says here that you survived an abusive marriage. And are you still currently
1: fostering the
0: teenage daughter or...
1: No, um, so I did survive the marriage and um, the daughter, she is now about to turn 39 in a couple of weeks and has a couple of kids of her own. (laughs) And she's extraordinary and doing very, very, very well. Um, Our lives pass, uh, our paths in life crossed in the early 2000s Mm. when she was a teenager. And now she's all grown up has her own career, her life, her family, and we are still very, very, very close. Uh, we're in touch all the time, and she is amazing. And so I just feel like I I was, um, <laughs> I, I fell onto her path for a reason and she onto mine, and we sort of helped each other through a period of life. And yeah. um, she was the best part of the marriage, honestly. She's the best thing that came out of that. That's
0: nice. <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> so yeah. um what when you say abusive, like what do you mean? Like verbal, physical,
1: mental, like what kind of uh, abuse was it? It was I would say verbal and and emotional, mental. Um mm. because what I didn't know, and to his defense my now ex husband didn't know was that he was living with mental illness quite severe. Mm. But he Mm -hmm. had not been diagnosed, he was not in treatment, he was not getting care, and he didn't even know, uh, and I I truly believe that, he didn't understand what was happening with his brain. Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't really able to function, and he would become frustrated with things, and he took it out on me. Mm -hmm. And so everything that went wrong was my fault. No matter what it was, it was always my fault, and I had caused, um, apologies if you hear my cat meowing in the background... Um it's okay. <laughs> she's just she's just weighing in to agree. Yes, it was bad. But, <laughs> but um yeah, so he had a lot of issues and then we had this foster child that we were trying to figure out how do we take care of and we had just gotten married and it you know there were so many things happening um that it was really just an impossible c- scenario and the greatest thing that he did was Years after we were actually divorced, he called me up and finally said that he had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Oh
0: my and God.
1: he said that it won't excuse his behavior, but he hoped that it, it would explain his behavior. And mm-hmm. that was a huge kindness that he did that because it helped me to understand that while I certainly what? wasn't perfect and I'm sure I contributed to things too, mm-hmm. but that his, there was sort of a reason why. He was so erratic and would have these really frightening outbursts at me or at other people. Particularly when we were driving, he would stop mm. the car on the freeway in the fast lane. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! That's really, so really, dangerous. so dangerous. And it's amazing we survived a lot of the scenarios that he he put us in. Oh my um, goodness! But. Now, at least I understand that in his brain, for some reason, he didn't see that he was doing something wrong, or I don't even know. I mean, I will never totally understand what was happening for him, but it was um, that. It was that. It was, there were really many, many, many frightening moments. And, and the lasting part, you know, we would get through the moments, but there was this constant fear that there was going to be the next moment and the fact that all of them were blamed on me. Because he didn't know how to take responsibility for things because his brain wasn't working right.
0: Wow! Well, at least you got closure, which is yes. great because a lot of people do not get that closure. So yeah. I'm happy that you got a closure and you got a wonderful daughter out of it. Absolutely, absolutely which is wonderful. Yeah. So, in your opinion, um, why do you think HIV
1: is different for
0: women than for men?
1: I think it's different for women um, for a couple of reasons. Uh just physiologically, our bodies mm-hmm. are different. So mm-hmm. it manifests in different ways in women, and we're not um included in studies as much as men. Even today, it's it's better than it was, but it's still not quite as good as it should be. And so I feel like that we don't know a hundred percent that all of the medications work the same way. And early on there were some disastrous um, situations where they had only tested medications on men. Mm. And then when women would take them, they got very sick and some even died. So things like that, Mm -hmm. they're, they're just physiological differences. There's also, of course, the whole issue of reproductive health that is very Mm -hmm. different. Mm. Um, That for many women, you know, when we think about what, what happened in the United States where they overturned the Roe v. Wade and the abortion rules, Yes. Early on for women with HIV, it was just assumed that you could never have a child because Mm. you would be a murderer. And so it was sort of like you will have an abortion if you get pregnant. Oh my gosh. Whereas now I I don't even know, you know, I I can't even fathom what that conversation is like for a woman with HIV. I hope that it's very different than it was, but, Mm. um, at the same time, in many, many other countries, many more other countries, women, despite having HIV, were expected to have children still, even though it might be bad for their health. Um, and they might not be have been in a place where prevention of mother-to-child transmission was available. Mm. Um, and yet they still had to have children, which sometimes could be worse, but society was like, we don't care, you still have to have kids. But then they would have the children, the baby might have HIV. Suddenly, the family realizes that HIV is now in the in the the mix yeah. in the baby, in the mother, and then she gets blamed for bringing HIV into the family when it might have been the father. Yeah, but she would suffer the consequences inordinately. That that was always out of balance in my observation. Yep and then That's there were right. issues is. yeah and then there's issues around breastfeeding for example and um the world health organization and unicef and the organizations that work on uh, all things related to children always say that it is best to breastfeed exclusively for the first 6 months of the baby's mm-hmm. life if mm-hmm. possible and yet with a woman with hiv the the advice is a little bit different and if you if you can, they recommend not breastfeeding for some women and that you should only use formula. And yet, there again, if you don't have access to the formula or the clean water to mix the formula, then you're in trouble. And then you're in society where everybody expects you have a baby. Of course, you're going to breastfeed. But if a woman's not breastfeeding, what does that mean? What's wrong with her? Why is she, she doing that? So it presents a whole nother set of very visible issues that men don't necessarily have to deal with. Mm. And then there's the whole issue around stigma that if a man, I mean, the bottom line is, I think society across the board sort of allows men to have sex with other people, multiple partners, and it's just men being men. Mm -hmm. But society assumes that if a woman has sex with somebody and contracts HIV, somehow they must be a horrible terrible person
0: yeah
1: when it may be the only partner they've ever been with who gave them hiv a yeah it's true yeah. there's a double standard there and so i think that women deal with the stigma deal with a stigma that is different than what men get and yeah. um and that's on many many things i mean that's not unique to hiv sadly there are a lot of double standards in our our world for women um, but those are a couple of things that come to mind immediately that women really deal with differently than men when it comes to having HIV.
0: Yeah, that's true. Because I, I, I'm i sure it's the stigma that killed my mother, not the
1: yeah. HIV
0: or AIDS, or whatever. It's the stigma of people knowing and painting her as a promiscuous lady or exactly. a bad lady or whatever. but. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, for for anyone that just um realized that they have HIV or somebody that's living with HIV, like what advice would you give them to continue um living their life without feeling the shame that comes from it?
1: Um, I think the most important thing is to find other people living with HIV. Mm. And that is easy for me to say sitting here in the comfort of my home. It is not so easy to do when you're the person hearing this information. But um, I think that pretty much everywhere in the world now, there are communities of people living with HIV and there are networks of women living with HIV that a person can tap into. Um, And I think that if you can find another person living with HIV who has had a shared experience, that is one of the best things because then you realize you are not alone. And the minute you are able to talk to somebody else who truly, truly, truly knows what you're going through, it becomes um, a little bit less scary and the hold it has on you of living with this thing starts to diminish even a tiny, tiny bit, and that makes a gigantic difference. Mm-hmm. So um, I, there is a group called the International Community of Women Living with HIV, and, or ICW for short. I think they have uh, icw.org might be their website. I'm not sure, but definitely International Community of Women Living with HIV is something a woman could look for. And there's another group called the global network of people living with HIV. They're both global networks of people living with HIV who have, um, both regional networks and country level networks and local networks of people living with HIV all over the planet. So that is a place to start. And it's, you know, it's, somewhere to at least look and see what they're talking about. They have lots of information about how to deal with it. Um, I remember early on, we created a sort of toolkit for women living with HIV to to learn how to become their own advocates with their doctors, um, how to deal with the stigma, how to tell people, because disclosure is very difficult. Um, The best tip I can give to somebody for disclosure is First of all, keep in mind, once you tell somebody, you can't get the information back. But also that if you are in as good a frame of mind as possible, considering the situation, the person hearing that information will take it better. And so sort of prepare yourself to tell anybody that you're going to tell. And and start with people that you feel truly are going to be supportive and sadly we don't know that until we've told them. We don't yes. really know what their response is going to be. <laughs> but that's why if there's any way to talk to somebody else living with HIV, your chances are better because they're much much less understandable. Likely. Yeah, they're going to understand. They're going to be like, "Yep, I've been there. I know what that feels like." And I think that's a good place to start.
0: Okay. Thank you so much for the for talking about your life and um you know, and everything, the tips that you give. So if you're out there living with HIV, please reach out to those um, places that Martina just mentioned and just know it's not a death sentence. Okay. Exactly. Thank you so much, Martina.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, I have a, a website, Martina-clark.com, and I. I'm always checking my messages there. So that's another option. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Big, big thank you to our guest for um, for today. And if you would like to learn more about today's topic, please go on howtosurvivesociety.com. There you can get um, some life skills courses and some merchandise and um Contact me if you would like to be a guest on the show. So, thank you so much for tuning in and have yourself a lovely day. within minutes of finishing your recording. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Let's create something great together. So if you ever need help to start your own podcast, reach out to me. And then you know what you can do also? You know, you can follow the link in the show notes in the show notes that lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you so you can get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan. And you can also support the show that way. So, yeah. So, if you're looking to start your own podcast, reach out to me. Follow the link under the notes show, and you'll be able to sign up and get a $20 Amazon card. Yeah.